If I am uh, making something, if I'm building something, or if I'm repurposing something, uh, I find it helpful to see an example that I can understand what the finished product uh, potentially could look like. And so for me, because I like to work with vintage things, because I, I like to repurpose old materials, uh, I often find myself going to Pinterest, which is actually good because sometimes I have an idea and I share it with Jen and she goes, why would you do that? And I say, oh, I saw it on Pinterest and because I saw it there, it's okay. For a moment, it was a dumb idea, but because it was on Pinterest, it's all good. It's all good. And so uh, I'll often go there for ideas. What can I do with this item? What have other people done with this item? What are some examples that I can follow? Now, if you've ever done that, you, 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 you recognize that successfully duplicating what you see on Pinterest is often more challenging than one might think. Now, I'm not a baker. Uh, some of you are bakers. I'm not a baker, but, but uh, there are some people who have posted pictures of what they saw on Pinterest and how it turned out in, in the baking world. And, I, and I'd like to share that with you uh, this morning. These are our uh, ducky cup, uh, pop cake pops, and this is how the person's turned out. This one's my favorite. Uh, you have the Sonic, uh, the hedgehog cake for your six-year-old's birthday party, and everybody goes home traumatized <laughs> because that's how your, your cake turned out. Uh, you know, then you have the minion, and it looks like your dog ate it and then brought it back. Uh, or our favorite Cookie Monster cupcakes. I mean, those are so adorable, and the mom who made these must be so, so incredibly, incredibly proud. Examples to follow. Sometimes it, it just doesn't quite work out uh, as, we, as we intend. Now, even though we may not be successful in duplicating an example that's provided for us, it, it doesn't mean that there aren't examples that we strive to follow. We may not always hit the target, but we keep striving, and we're going to talk about that a little bit this morning. Today, we're going to continue uh, our series, uh, sorry, I did that, our series entitled Critical Questions, and uh, we're, we're talking about some of the questions that Jesus asked in John's gospel and specifically how these questions can relate to us. And so next Sunday, I'm actually going to wrap this series up. Some of you are wondering, uh, you know, is this going to go forever? That's a critical question that you've been asking. And, um, and so no, it's not going to last forever. Next Sunday, we're going to wrap it up. But we've looked at, we started with what do you want? And then where are they? Do you want to get well? Where should we buy bread? Do you have any fish? And last week, will you give me a drink? Today's question is, do you understand what I just did? Now, Jesus asked this question to his disciples after washing their feet in the upper room prior to his death. And he, asked, he, he carried out this act to set an example for them that unlimited love is expressed in humility and sacrifice. And that's what we're going to talk and, and hope to see today. Unlimited love is expressed in humility and sacrifice. Our scripture, John 13, verses 1 to 17. If you have your Bible or your Bible app, you can keep it open. Thank you, Jim, for reading it this morning, and you can follow along as we go through this morning. We're going to start with the context. 
Chapter 13 of John's gospel is the turning point in the gospel. It marks the beginning of the end, the beginning of the final hours of Jesus' life prior to his crucifixion. And so these are the moments leading up to that. It's just before Passover, we're told in our scripture. And earlier in John's gospel, when we looked at our first critical question, we mentioned that uh, earlier Jesus was introduced by John the Baptist as the Lamb of God. And John said, look, there's the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. And so it's now just before Passover, just before the death of Jesus, and Passover was a celebration, is a celebration of the redemption of God's people from Egypt. Lambs were sacrificed, blood was shed as a means of deliverance. And so this particular Passover that John references here will gain a whole new significance as the Lamb of God is sacrificed for the deliverance of all mankind, for all sin, for all time. And this is going to be not only a turning point in John's gospel, but a turning point in history as we know it in terms of God's redemption. Now, while there's some debate, because you read in some of the gospels that the timing seems to not really add up, and there's a lot of debate about when did this event actually really, really happen? And so I would suggest to you that it's likely taking place on the Thursday evening prior to Passover. That, that's what makes the most sense, prior to the Friday Passover. Later on this particular evening, we know that Jesus will be arrested. He's going to be held overnight. In the early morning, he's going to be tried, and then he's going to be brought to Pilate. He's going to be condemned. And then before the sun sets that day, he's going to be crucified on the cross, and we know that his body is laid in the tomb before dark because it's the beginning of Passover. So that's our timeline. We're told that Jesus is aware of the time. He's aware of the hour. He's aware that it's, it's, it's time for him to be glorified. It's time for him to return to the Father. It's the time has come. Jesus has been on a divine time schedule, and this is a certain it's a definite, it's a critical time in God's plan of redemption, and he's aware of it. He knows the time has come. It says that he has loved his own in the world, which is his disciples, his followers, and it says that he loved them to the end. Now, when we read that sentence, it's easy for us to interpret that to mean to the end, at, you know, that, well, like it says, the actual end. But to the end is best understood as capacity of love, not the timing of love. It means that he loved them to the limit. He loved them to the full capacity. He loved them in an unlimited way. And of course, he's foreshadowing what he's about to do for them. Jesus is sharing a meal with his disciples. And we're introduced during this meal to a significant spiritual conflict and contrast of what's happening in this room. While Jesus is teaching some of the most significant lessons and sharing some of the most significant truth with his followers and doing God's work in this room, we are told that the devil is also at work in this room. And we see the contrast of what's happening. We're, we're specifically told that he's at work in the heart 
and the mind, the thinking of one of those whom Jesus loves to the limit. He loves these to the limit, and one of them, Judas, the devil has already worked in his heart and in his mind, and he's already made decisions of what he's going to do on the devil's behalf. The devil's already prompted Judas to betray Jesus, and the decision to carry this act has already been decided. Although Jesus knows this, he's aware of this, he's not shaken by it. He's not intimidated by it. He's not distracted by it. Well, why would that be? This is pretty significant. Why would this spiritual attack that's happening in this room that is so significant, why is he not distracted by it? It says because he knew that the Father had put all things under his power. All things, even the onslaught of the enemy in these final moments that he has with his followers, all of these things are under his power. That he has come from God and he's returning to God. And so Jesus is empowered by God to fulfill the sovereign will of God. Secondly, we have his actions. This passage is what is referred to as a farewell discourse. Now, a farewell discourse contains the final words, the final actions of a person who knows they're about to die. And so the final things that they want to, to leave with those that they're, they're leaving behind, with those people that they care about, this is the time that they will speak about these things to this person. And so that's what happens in a farewell discourse. And we see this a number of times in the Bible. We see it in Genesis 49 at the end of Jacob's life where he's blessing his sons and he's sharing information. We see it in Joshua chapters 22 to 24 where Joshua is addressing the people of Israel just prior to his death. We see it in 1 Chronicles chapters 28 and 29 where David addresses his son Solomon and also the nation of Israel before his death. And in fact, the whole book of Deuteronomy, the whole book contains Moses' farewell discourse to Israel before his uh, departure from them. So we'll see in this passage the final message that Jesus wants to leave with his followers before he dies. Now in the time of Jesus, people wore sandals as the basic only footwear. If you wore footwear at all, you wore sandals. And the roads were either really dusty or really muddy. And either way, you had dirty feet. Dirty feet was a common thing amongst everybody. It didn't matter if you were rich. It didn't matter if you were poor. If you lived in this time, your feet got dirty when you walked in the streets. And so a large pot was located inside the entrance of, of each home containing water that would be used for foot washing. Now, poor people would come in and they washed their own feet, or maybe if you were lucky and you had a bad day and you came home, your wife would have sympathy on you and she'd wash your feet. But you did your own foot washing. If you were rich, then you had servants who would wash your feet. When foot washing involved someone else washing another person's feet, there were very strict guidelines around it. Because washing another person's feet was considered to be so menial in this culture 
that Jewish people would not even allow their own Jewish servants to do it. It was so low that even their own Jewish servants couldn't do it. In fact, they would reserve it for Gentile slaves because it was so menial. And so Jesus and his disciples in our scripture came from the street and they've come into this room to share this meal together and there is no servant present to wash their feet because this is a private gathering and they're there, they've, they've secured the room and it's just them and there's no one there to perform this menial task for them. We're told that in the middle of the meal, Jesus got up from the table, he removed his outer clothing, and he wrapped a towel around his waist. Now, the symbol of a towel around your waist was a symbol of slavery, because that is what a slave would do. A slave would, would wear the towel around their waist so that they were prepared and ready to carry out these menial tasks when required. And so Jesus is, is, is putting this towel around him like a slave would do. And we're told he poured water into the basin and he started washing his disciples' feet. And then he begins to dry them with the towel. And of course, when he got to Peter, Peter asked them a question. He said, you're not going to wash my feet, are you? This is actually more of a statement than a question. I often use that with staff or my kids. I'll ask a question and they'll go to answer the question. I'll say, oh, I'm sorry, did you interpret that as a question? That's what this is. This is a, this is a statement. In other words, Peter's saying, you're not going to wash my feet. He's astonished. How can this be possible? But Jesus is going to wash my feet. And, and Jesus said, Peter, the time is going to come. Well, you'll understand. You'll look back on this moment and you'll go, oh, it all makes sense now. I know now. I understand what it was he was trying to to teach us down the road, this is going to make sense to you, Peter. It doesn't right now, but it will down the road. Because washing their feet was symbolic of the ultimate humility that he would demonstrate very soon by voluntarily laying down his life for the salvation of others. Well, Peter doesn't really understand. And so he rejected Jesus. He said, no. No way. You will never wash my feet. It's not going to happen. Never. And Jesus said, Peter, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. You can't be a part of me. You can't be my follower. You can't have relationship with Peter. You can't be a part of the kingdom of God. If I don't wash you, if you don't let me do this for you, you can't be a part of me. Well, of course, typical Peter, he goes, fine, then wash my hands and my head too. Give me a bath. And Jesus says, no need for that, Peter. You're missing the point. It's not the washing act itself, Peter. It's the humility and the love that is being demonstrated that you need to receive and understand. Thirdly, example. Jesus finished washing their feet. He put his clothes back on and he returned to his place at the table 
And then he asked the question that we're dealing with and considering this morning, do you understand what I just did? Do you understand what I just did? He wants to make sure that they understand what it is he's trying to communicate to them through his actions. He said, you call me teacher. You call me Lord. These are elevated titles. You have placed me above you. And rightfully so, because guess what, guys? I am above you. I am teacher, and I am Lord. I have authority over you. Yes, I'm levels above you. There's no question. But he says, if your teacher, your Lord, who is above you, can humble himself and wash your feet, if I can do that for you, in light of who I am, then certainly you can do this sort of thing for each other. If I could humble myself to serve you, then you can humble yourselves to serve others. He says, I've set an example for you to copy. An example for you to copy. I want you to do for others what I have done for you. You're not greater than me. So if I can do it, you can do it. As I have done, you must do. Now, he's not suggesting the perpetuation of foot washing here, although I must say some scholars that I admire who believe in this in their church practice make some pretty strong arguments for it. But relax, we're not going to break out the basins so you can wash your neighbor's feet this morning. That's not what this passage is about. His emphasis is on the inner attitude of a humble and voluntary service shown to others. And then Jesus ends this section by saying, now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do it. As we consider this passage this morning, there are just two challenges from Jesus that I believe confront us as we, as we read this. The first is, do as I have done. Do as I have done. As you read the rest of the chapter and you get to verse 34, it's one that may be familiar to many of you. Jesus reiterates once again all that he taught in this passage, and he says, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. As I have, you must. These words, as I have, you must, they ring through history. They ring through the church. They ring through the souls of those of us who claim to be his followers. As I have done, you must. Now, honestly, I often find this challenge from Jesus very difficult to fulfill. <laughs> you probably don't, but I do. I know Jesus loves me. 
I can see the impact of his love in my life. I can honestly say that I don't deserve the love he's shown and continues to show me on a daily basis. I will admit that. But in light of that, and despite that, there are people that I struggle with seeing as worthy to receive my love and be served. Just being honest. Maybe you struggle with the same. It's hard to love people who've hurt us. It's hard to love people who've lied to us. It's hard to love people who've lied about us. It's hard to love people who've betrayed us. Yet his words echo within us, as I have, you must. It's sometimes hard to love people who have lifestyles that we don't agree with, that oppose seemingly everything that we hold as valuable, yet his words echo in us, as I have, you must. It's hard to love people whose political views and political allegiances are significantly different than ours. But his words say, as I have, you must. It's hard to love people who continue to make our lives difficult every single day. Every day. This is not a a long time ago thing or a few months ago, but every single day, these people, this person makes my life difficult. Difficult. It's hard to love that person. But Jesus says, as I have, you must. Jesus' command to love your enemies is hard. It's seemingly impossible. I don't know about you, but I find it really hard to do that. I find it easier to decide who is worthy of my love and my service and who isn't. It's hard. What I find interesting, even shocking in this passage, is that it's clear that Judas, he's already decided that he is going to betray Jesus. It's already been determined. Yet Jesus washed all of their feet. Even Judas. Can you imagine that moment? He's making his way around the room and he comes to the one that the devil has already taken a hold of his soul, has already taken a hold of his heart and his mind. He's already determined that he is going to do something that is so horrible that he's going to do the devil's work, that he is going to betray the very Son of God. He's going to bring anguish upon him to incredibly intense suffering because of his betrayal. He's going to bring all of the lives of his followers into chaos. And Jesus kneels at his feet and begins to wash them with the same love and affection as the others who he knows will remain faithful. 
That blows my mind. It really does. You know, a few years ago, the big focus in Christianity was WWJD, what would Jesus do, right? Maybe some of you still have the bracelets. Just let you know, people aren't wearing those anymore. What would Jesus do? I think that was the wrong question. Because when you ask, what would Jesus do? It leads us to interpret what we think he might. And we surmise and we decide what Jesus, what he would do. I think it was the wrong question. I believe the better question is, WDJD. What did Jesus do? That's the question. What did Jesus do? And then all we have to do is what he did. We don't have to make it up. We don't have to decide for ourselves. We don't have to think we have the inside track. We just have to do what he did. It's simple. Earlier I quoted verse 34 which says, as I have loved you, you must love one another. But there was more to that command. Jesus said, because, why? By this, everyone will know that you belong to me if you love one another. Loving people who are not deserving of our love is the sign to the world that we belong to Jesus. Because anybody can love somebody who deserves our love. Anybody can do that. But the sign that we belong to him, his loving people who have no right to be loved by us. Loving people who are not deserving will be the sign. Not our doctrine. Not our programs. Not our activities or our buildings. Staff. Our music style. Loving people who are not deserving of our love is the sign. It's the sign. I didn't choose it. And some days, most days, I wish he hadn't. It would make my life a lot easier if he hadn't. I wouldn't be honest with you this morning if I said that this would be easy. It's not easy. But it doesn't change the fact that this is very pointedly what he's called us to. As I have, you must. Secondly, now that you know. Jesus ends this section, the end of verse 17, with these words, now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Jesus makes it clear here that there's a difference between knowing something and doing something. Because you can know what is true. You can know what's right. You can know what's expected of you. You can know what's appropriate to do, but then not do it. It's possible. It happens all the time. 
And so what he's trying to show here is that his expectation is first that we know and then that we do based on what we know. That our beliefs are to be lived out in the action of our lives. That faith and works go hand in hand. And so Jesus is showing us that knowing brings an obligation to doing. Knowing brings an obligation to doing. William Wilberforce was instrumental in leading the movement to abolish the British trade, the slave trade. He was a member of the British Parliament and brought details of the reality of what was happening in slavery before the House in Britain regularly, pushing for legislation to end the slave trade in Britain. He died three days before the legislation was passed. Now, one of his famous quotes, and I know that I'm actually... Jen thinks I'm stealing it from her, but it was actually his. And even though you found it before I did, I'll give you credit for that. It's on the 4-1 website, and she uses it for the anti-human trafficking causes that she's a part of. But this is one of his famous quotes. Having heard all this, you may choose to look the other way, but you can never again say that you did not know. Having heard all this, you may choose to look the other way, but you can never again say that you did not know. Wilberforce understood the teaching of Jesus. Now that you know, now that you know, you must act accordingly. Now that you know. I think sometimes we let ourselves off the hook because we think humility is just the opposite of pride. And since we associate pride with arrogance, because we associate pride with arrogance, we assume that because we're not arrogant, then we're humble, not proud. Humility is not just the absence of pride. Humility is refusing to establish any boundary that will keep us from serving and loving as Jesus called us to serve and love. Any boundary. Jesus recognized there was boundaries. He addressed them. He said, listen, I know you see a boundary. You see me as the, the rabbi, the teacher, the Lord, and rightfully so. And you've, you put this boundary, and so I'm telling you that I'm removing the boundary because if I up here can lower myself to this, certainly you down there can do the same. And so humility is, is, is refusing to establish any boundary that will keep us from serving and loving as Jesus has called us to serve and love. And as I reflect on that, I believe truthfully and honestly, we establish boundaries all the time that keep us from humbly serving others 
and the kingdom of God. And we don't see these boundaries as hindrance to love and service, but sometimes they can be, and most often they are. And so I just want to suggest a few of them. The first is a circumstances boundary. I'm going through a difficult time right now. That may be your sentence. It may be your reality. Things are tough. It's been painful. It's hard. And right now, I just need to focus on my stuff. And when I can kind of get my stuff all figured out, then I'm going to get to loving and serving others when I'm ready to do that. But this is my season to get my stuff sorted out. That's a legitimate argument. I'm presently reading a book by Brene Brown. Jen made me. And uh, she quotes one of my, my most favorite quotes in the whole world, and I'm not going to share it with you, but she makes this statement about it because it talks about being in the mud with your face in the mud. And she says, when you're face down in the mud, you need to look around while you're down there to see who else is down there with you. And she's talking about within the context of, because when you do that, you're able to come into the lives of other people and empathize with them and, and, and feel and, and walk with them because you can understand to some degree what they're going through because, well, you're there yourself. And I know that when we're going through a really hard time, we, we just sometimes feel that we just, we really need to set that boundary and look after ourselves first because there's a lot of truth in the fact that you can't help anybody else if you're a mess. I, I, I get that. However, I, I think that kind of goes through Scripture because it's the biggest messes that help people the most. If you read your Bible, your difficult circumstances our difficult circumstances uniquely equip us to serve and love others in the midst of our struggle. And so let's not set that boundary that because it's really legitimately hard right now that I'm somehow exempt and I can set that boundary. No, no. Love and serve in whatever mud pile you find your face in. Look around. Who's there with you? Don't let that boundary keep you from humility. There's the age boundary. I'm too old. I'm too old. Age happens. Trust me, I get it. It's hard to be a 53-year-old man in a 93-year-old man's body sometimes. That's how it feels some days. You're thinking, yeah, you don't even know yet, buddy, and you're right, I don't. But you say, I'm too old. And I understand that. You know, when you're 85 years old, it's hard chasing four-year-olds in the nursery, in the kids' ministry. I get that. I'm not promoting insanity here. All I'm suggesting is that aging, yes, will affect the things we're able to do. There is no question. But it doesn't exempt us from doing what we can. 
So we have to ask ourselves, in light of my age and my physical health, and I no longer can do these things, what things can I do? What things can I do to love and serve others at this stage of my life? There's the retirement mentality boundary. This is my least favorite thing to hear in pastoring, this, this one. It really is. I've served my time. It's like you went to prison. I've served my time, and now it's time for someone else to take a turn. I've done my 25 years to life, and now I'm out. I'm free. Someone else can take my cell. I've served my time. It's someone else's. I understand that. It gets weary over time. It does. I, I get that. But I also believe that we have served our time in that moment when we're standing before Jesus and he looks at us and says, well done, good and faithful service. You've served your time. You can relax now. <laughs> That's when we've served our time. It may have to change what we do, but it doesn't. It's the fact that we've been faithful in the past is not an excuse to not continue to love and serve others in the future. And if we adopt that mentality, then we've set a boundary. The crazy life boundary. Who hasn't been there? This is a busy season in my life. I'm, I'm wrapping up post-secondary education. Or I have young family. I may even have four kids under four. Or I'm establishing a business, or I'm just, I'm just starting into my career. I'm getting things going, and, and things are really demanding right now, and they're really busy, and I, I just can't even hardly keep my head above water. Most days I can't even get a shower, let alone think of whatever. Busy seasons affect what we can do. There's no question. But they don't exempt us from creatively finding a way to do something. That in the midst of the craziness, we don't establish a boundary that exempts us from loving and serving other people. And in doing so, loving and serving Jesus. And then there's the selective boundary. I'll end with this one. There's lots of them. But the selective boundary is, you know what? This is what I want from my church. I come here. This is what I'm looking for. But like, you know what, this is kind of how far it goes. I, I don't really want to get, I don't want really want to get involved in anything else. I don't want to get involved in stuff that requires my time or my energy or my resources or my gifts. I just, this, this is the segment I've carved out for me. I've carved this out for me. So I come Sunday morning. Now I know there's nobody here that can relate to this, but I, I just got to do it just to be fair. I come Sunday morning and I participate in worship and the sermon and the prayer and I see people and then that's it. I leave and that's, that's it. Folks, that's just the tip of the iceberg of what it means to be a follower of Jesus in a community of faith. It's just, it's just the tip of it. And so when we say, well, no, here's my boundaries. This, I want this and this and I'll give this and this, but then that's it. That's it. I'm going to be selective. I'm going I'm to pick and choose you know, sometimes we think we're 
Church is like the pop machines now at the movie theaters where I can go and push six different buttons and create a flavor that no one's ever heard of before in my soft drink. And that's what I want. I'm going to select what I want and I'm going to leave the rest behind. These are boundaries. They're boundaries. And they keep us from loving and serving in the kingdom of God as Jesus has called us to do. Humility is not just the absence of pride. Humility is refusing to establish any boundary that will keep us from serving and loving as Jesus has called us to serve and love. And Jesus ends with a powerful statement that goes against a significant segment of North American evangelicalism. He says, blessing flows into our lives as we are faithful to do what God has asked us to do in loving and serving others in humility. Blessing in this life is not measured by material possessions. It's not measured by the awards that we receive or, or the accomplishments that we enjoy. It's not, you know, blessing in this life is not about experiencing all the things that we desire to experience. What a, what a blessing that is. No, blessing is the peace and the contentment and the confidence and the provision of God that comes when we're living in harmony with how he wants to use our lives. And that may mean there is no accomplishments or awards or much financial material stuff to go around. But you are blessed beyond what you can imagine. Because you know a peace and a contentment and a reality in your life of the provision and love of God and his smile of approval that yes, you get it. You got it right and you're doing what I asked and that's all that matters to you and that really matters to me. Good for you. You're blessed. And I guess the reverse of that is also true. We won't be blessed if we know, but we don't act. I'm going to invite Tyler and the worship team to come back. As we're loving to the full extent of our love, his love, the question that we have to ask ourselves, I think, is are we loving to the full extent of our love and his love? Because unlimited love is expressed in humility and sacrifice. Loving people who are difficult to love, not deserving of our love, is the sign to the world that we belong to Jesus. Humility is refusing to establish any boundary that will keep us from serving and loving Jesus as he's called us to serve and love. I'm going to end with Paul's words in Philippians chapter 2 verses 5 to 8 because he's reiterating the teachings of Jesus he says in your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus who being in the very nature God up here did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage Rather, he made himself nothing down here by taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself 
by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. Jesus said, I set an example for you. Humility. As I have done for you, so you must do. stand with me this morning. My prayer this morning as I listen to the words that I just preached, my prayer is that God by his Holy Spirit would help me to first of all want to strive for that goal because there's a lot of days I don't even have the motivation for it it's easier for me someone has said that that you know revenge is the laziest form of forgiveness right sometimes it's easier for us just to bask in the laziness of the heart not doing the hard work to really love and serve people who are difficult it just is And so we need the Holy Spirit to prompt us to to understand that that's just not good enough. It's not what he wants. And so my prayer is, show me and help me and convict me and help me to get there. Because most of the time, to be honest with you, I started with funny pictures. But but what I look at Jesus' example on the left and then what mine looks like on the right is is a complete fail. I'm trying to follow the example, but... A lot of days, it's just a complete fail. Holy Spirit, I need you to help me to get it right. And so as our prayer team comes and as our worship team leads us this morning, I just, I just invite you in, in humility this morning to say, Jesus, I, I'm not going to let any boundaries exist between me and what I believe you're calling me to do and who you're calling me to be in this world as I live out the kingdom of God. And if there are boundaries here, help me see them and help me, help me to, to remove them. Help me to love the people who are hard to love, who don't deserve it. Help me. Help me. You are great. We thank you this morning for that truth. Father, I thank you for sending Jesus. Jesus, we thank you for being a humble servant who loves us to the full extent, gave everything for us. And thank you that you invite us into the example that you set, not that we could ever accomplish what you did, but that we could model your example as we deal with those in our lives that we need to love and serve as followers of you. Lord, we believe this morning that it's not just those who will be served and loved that will benefit from what you've called us to do that you've called us to this because you know that for us to really know you, to know freedom and joy and truth and blessing in our lives, 
this is how our lives must be lived. That as hard as it is, the freeing, empowering nature of loving and serving those that we feel are undeserving impacts us in such a significant way that you know that that's necessary and important for us. So Father, I pray for all of us today as we're on this journey, trying to follow your example, not sitting back wondering what you might like, not wondering what you may have done, but having a a very clear and accurate record of what you're asking for and what you've shown us. We don't even need to wonder. We know. And now that we know, you said we must act. And so, Lord, I pray that that's the part you would help us with. Because often we're really good at knowing. We make a big priority of knowing. But where it falls down is living it out. So would you help us with that part? Would you help us? Would you convict us? Would you show us relationships in our lives that need to be restored? Action that needs to be taken? Points in our lives of boundaries that we've established that we won't keep us from the freedom of really knowing and serving you and serving and loving others. So Lord, as we leave this place today, Lord, I pray that we'll leave this place determined to do the best we can to follow your example. Not just in our own ability, but as your Holy Spirit is at work in us. Helping us to do what maybe we feel we could never do on our own. And God, I just pray that there would be health and wholeness in our lives as we are drawn to loving and serving others. Some we find great joy in, and others we have great difficulty with. Would you help us to overcome those obstacles and to love to the full extent, like you did? Lord, thank you that we could be here today. And I pray that something from these moments together, the sense of your presence, the words of a song, a prayer that was prayed, a scripture that was read, a greeting, a hug, a a word that was preached, anything, something would resonate in all of us as we leave. We take something with us that helps us on our journey following your example to serve you and love you better so that we can serve and love others better too. We pray this today in Jesus' name. Amen.